I guess I started building products in college um, with, uh, it, it was funny, like my freshman year dorm, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I got to college. And freshman year, uh, our dorm was entirely, like the, the first floor of the dorm was entirely computer science people. So I just kind of just followed them to the classes they were going to, and then ended up doing that. Uh, so basically became an engineer uh, by trade. Um, Where'd you go to school? And this was Stanford in the early 2000s. Oh, wow. okay. um, and there was kind of a shift to startups around that time. Um, originally, most of my classmates were going to work for like Microsoft, was sort of the big place you would go work, or Amazon. And then just starting to be Google around the time, uh, it's like 2005. Um, and then I noticed that people were starting to go to these much smaller uh, companies with much younger people. It was kind of interesting. And so I also followed that trend and ended up working at a, a startup called Oodle, which is like a classified startup. Um, and then eventually uh, through hubris, got the idea that maybe I could start my own company. And so around 2008, uh, I started a company with a, a good buddy of mine from college. Um, originally, it was uh, this thing called Blippy, Blippy, which like the guy on uh, Netflix. The have you have you yeah. heard about Blippy? Yeah, Netflix. I've got a daughter, so she, that's all she watches. Right, but that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> I have a daughter too. She hasn't gotten into that, but it's okay. more Coco Melon than Blippy. But yeah. Yeah, all right. uh, so Blippy was um, we're trying to build a social network oriented around a feed at the time, like the feed mechanic was just starting to emerge as like a really great sort of consumer interface for a bunch of things. And we thought we could build a feed of your like purchase history and we would scrape your credit card transactions using the same type of methodologies that Mint and uh, other companies like that were using. Um, and it would sort of publish passively the stuff you were buying. And the idea was to create social interaction around that. And for whatever reason, that idea caught fire within like the VC community in Palo Alto. I'm still based around Palo Alto. Um, and there was kind of a bidding war to invest in this crazy idea with these, you know, young kids who had no idea what they were doing. And we ended up raising like way too much money for a product that had no traction and was just all kind of hype to a certain extent. And so we spent about a year trying to build that. It didn't really go anywhere. Some of the integrations that we had built in particular with Etsy were kind of interesting in terms of the data they were producing. And so we decided to build a e-commerce product to try to elevate Etsy sellers. Um, and then we spent about a year on that and that had some modest traction, which eventually led us to um, build a sort of a marketplace where these Etsy sellers could sell um, in sort of a real time live auction environment type of product. Um, and that ended up taking off and getting to pretty massive scale. And so we spent about 10 years on that business. Um, and there were a bunch of trends that we were writing, but we effectively became like a version of like Wish or Timu, which, uh, which there were a lot of unbranded Chinese products that were selling in a like sort of massive consumer marketplace. Um, and then, uh, you know, we'd spent so long on that business that that my co-founder and I decided to to leave. Uh, it was kind of a slog, uh, a tough business, um, which sort of leads to today where there's this explosion of AI technologies and tools and frameworks um, that, you know, my co-founder and I were sort of um, linking back up after taking a, a year or two break. Um, and exploring like what can what types of consumer applications or SaaS businesses could you build with this? Um, I wouldn't say that we're machine learning practitioners. I think we're just more excited about the types of products that you couldn't build a year ago that you can now build, and ways that you might bring that technology to people that are not necessarily early adopters and going to like figure out how to run some of these models locally or could even navigate chat GPT, uh, you know, like my mother-in-law, like <laughs> she's like reading about AI stuff in the New York times, which really know how to, to dabble with it. But when I gave her like a phone number to dial and engage with this sort of automated agent, it kind of blew her mind. And like that sort of old school UX to this sort of crazy new technology was, was like an interesting, um, 
I think that's a, an interesting paradigm to try to build products with. So that sort of leads leads us to today where we don't really know exactly how this stuff is going to play out, but we we love tinkering with it. And so your project is called AnyCall.ai, the current one you're working mm -hmm. on. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about that and what that does? Yeah. So the idea is that you we're almost reaching a point where you can uh, service any phone call using the uh, a series of models sort of in line. Um, and so we're getting to the point where text-to-speech, like some of the stuff Eleven Labs is doing, it's almost... It's, it's almost too good. Like you can clone a voice and you can get AI to sort of speak with um, accents and, and intonations and things like that, that it's almost indistinguishable from real humans. And so you sort of pair that with some of the uh, automated speech recognition technology that is near perfect for English and some other sort of largely spoken languages. Um, and you package all that together there's, there's a couple of other models like voice activity detection and stuff like that to, to understand when there's a pause in the conversation or when someone stopped stop speaking and should try to process the data. But you sort of line all these things up in a, um, in a stack where it's everything sort of running and streaming in real time. And you can kind of simulate a person responding to a telephone conversation. There's a little bit of latency, but minus that latency, it's sort of indistinguishable from a human. And when you just run the inputs and the outputs through ChatGPT, in particular, we're using GPT-4 Turbo, um, which is sort of a significantly step up, but not that much slower uh, than GPT-3.5 Turbo, but definitely not as slow as GPT-4. Then the, the capabilities that you can build into these voice agents are like incredible. And for particular types of tasks, it's like Actually, the experience is faster and better than it might be with a real human. Um, and so we just kind of wired this up uh, over the course of one or two days and uh, tried playing with a few cases. Like the, the case we really liked was like this, um, this guy that runs a Neapolitan-style pizza shop that has like the persona of Vito Corleone from The Godfather <laughs> and, and just had like gave him a little bit of a personality and had him do some basic tasks in terms of taking orders for pizza. And the results were just like mind blowing. And we thought like, okay, we're not exactly sure what the killer use case for this is, but I think there's something here. So let's fire up like a self-serve platform for building these types of agents and just see where it takes us. On your uh, website, um, anycall.ai, you have, you can play around with Vito. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of cool. And before we got on, Ryan and I were talking to him. Um, I'll just give people an example of what it's what it's like here. And this is live right here. It's it's awesome. <laughs> oh no, this is Vito speaking from the Don's Dough over here on Avenue J in Brooklyn. How many pies can I get started for you today? I'll take two pizzas. Great, two pizzas coming right up. What size would you like for these? We've got small, medium, and large. I'll take the biggest pizza you got. Ah, I like your style. Two large pizzas it is. Now what toppings would you like on these? I'll have some. Just so you know, we stick to the six here. Oh, all right. I'll have some. Could you tell me which toppings you would? Just go ahead and list them for me. Of course. What toppings would you like on your large pizzas? I'll have name them and I'll make sure they're added to your order. I'll have some sausage. Sausage, got it. That's a choice you can't refuse. Will it be sausage on both of the pizzas? Absolutely. Perfect. Two large pizzas with sausage. Now, what time would you like to pick them up? We can have them ready no earlier than 30 minutes from now. I need them quicker than 30 minutes. I'm sorry, but the earliest we can prepare your order for pickup would be in 30 minutes from now. Our pies, they need a little time to be perfect, just like a fine wine. Can we make it work for you in 30 minutes? So that's just a little bit of, of veto. And it's just a demo version, obviously. It's just uh, kind of funny, but uh, I mean, it, it, it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I was watching the... The conversation between men, it's a, uh, you can already see some of like the limitations in terms of like, it got interrupted by the feedback from the audio and your speakers and that, those sorts of things, but generally pretty good. And the stuff is only going to get better, but yeah, that was fun. <laughs> if you guys want to test it out, you can test it out um, on the, on the website. It's uh it's really cool. The first time we tested it, it was like, uh, it was very good. Like the latency wasn't bad at all. And I, I, on this example, I picked up some of the feedback, like Chris was saying on our on our computers and through the podcast, but uh, 
it was talking about, you know, it just had a lot of personality to it. It was talking about the dough and how it was made, you know, how you should let the dough. We wanted the pizza done in 20 minutes. It's like, well, you got to let the dough rise and, you know, just going into <laughs> how the process of pizza making goes. So uh, it was really cool that it had that much personality behind them. That was the, the cool part about it. And the cool thing, I think, is uh, you did one for Santa Claus mm -hmm. uh, around Christmas time. And they, and you, you could have your kids talk to Santa Claus. Um uh, you would call and then tell them some information about your kids. And then Santa Claus would pick up the phone. It was so cool. Actually, the person that I was in the room with was like, like thought that I was talking to an actual person. I'm like, no, <laughs> like this, this is just a, an AI. Like it was so realistic. It was, it was super cool. Um, but can you just tell us like, it, it seems like you're moving towards like, you can actually design the personality of the, the the ai entity you're calling and then it can learn from you in some ways as well yeah i mean there, there's a couple of interesting things like just to be clear like the heavy lifting is the llm in terms of like figuring out the personality and so this is so typical of a lot of these ai applications now is that to a certain extent they're kind of wrappers around the capabilities of these gpt models um and so for us, like the innovation is more figuring out how to reduce the latency, um, uh, process the audio in sort of the optimal way to, to clean up all these sort of interruptions and things like you just experienced. Um, and so in that sense, it's more of like a, a systems design problem. But these LLMs are just incredible for being able to creatively come up with the, the personality that, that you feel, which makes it like a really good choice for this type of application assuming that you want a personality like we have we're talking to some folks who sort of want no personality because it's like a business application but i think it's way more fun if you are dabbling with some of the creativity that these llms can produce um and then in terms of like uh learning over time like there's definitely like uh some magic involved in fine-tuning for specific use cases in which case you can actually choose a less capable model that's fine-tuned for your particular case and then really reduce the latency because you can run a, like an open source model on the edge um, and, and really not have to pay the penalty of, of hitting OpenAI's API. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's so early days on this stuff that like, I think a year from now, you might see a world where there's like effectively zero latency and the cost to do this stuff is really low and it's almost indistinguishable from, from a human, which, you know, I think it, in its own right is sort of a scary scenario. If you can imagine like yeah. people calling you and harassing you and upselling you, <laughs> like, and it's all AI and you can't really tell. Like, even if uh, yeah, but, people, if you're watching YouTube videos, a lot of them, I'd say like probably 20 or 30% of the ones I'm watching right now uh, for educational reasons, like there, a lot of them are AI voices and I can tell they're, you can tell they're AI voices because it'll be the same voice, like the same 11 labs AI voice on multiple different right. videos. Um, but at the same token, it's like, you know, people get scared of interacting with AI, but a lot of times those videos are better than ones done by humans. So does it really matter in the long run? I don't know. Like one of the things that you mentioned, Chris, that I think might be a thing is, you know, all these, there's a lot of companies out there that are creating AI voices for call centers for enter, um, answering customer service calls. But maybe, and I just thought of this, maybe the customer service agents, these AI, AI agents are going to be programmed to have their own unique personalities, each one's, because it makes it more interesting rather than just calling and getting the same AI person every single time. Maybe you'll, you'll have an AI uh, personality on the call center that is, you know, was born in India, then moved to the United States and then has a personality because they, uh, you know, are into math or something. I don't know. Like it's not, maybe that's the ticket is we're going to have all these personalized AI uh, interactions rather than just some, you know, scrubbed down version that gets right to the point. Now, some customers or some clients might not want that. They might want a scrubbed down, you know, dumb version AI uh, bot answering calls, but it, it sounds like a lot of people would really uh, rather talk to an AI bot that has personality. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean that that's how I feel about it. Like I, I think there's, um, well, certainly it's it's probably a very good thing that you can get this stuff to match the culture of what you're trying to build, the company you're trying to build. But I think for us, we had, uh, you know, at the peak, we had 
thousands of customer support emails come in and we had like a massive team. Um, and it was like very dry, like transactional sort of emails being sent back and forth. And like, there's a possibility for so much better. And I can imagine a scenario where your customer service prompts sort of evolve over the course of the conversation to progressively get sort of more expressive or funnier, like evolve the personality based on the the type of speech coming in from the caller. So if you you, you can tell they're pissed, then you can kind of dial up like how serious the, the personality is. But if if it makes sense to be more whimsical, then you can sort of progressively move in that direction through prompts sort of evolving based on the prior input. And I think like something like that could be really, uh, really interesting and sort of fun and probably a net benefit for the, the, the world of, you know, customer support where it's sort of a bad experience on both sides. You've got like customers who are pissed and then you have poor service agents who are like bearing the brunt of that. So yeah, no, it's almost like when you meet someone in the real world and you like them because you like their personality, right? And you sort of just click and hit things off right away. It's almost like that could happen with a call center call as well. Totally. Like you're just going to yeah. like this person because the AI is going to be trained to know what you like based mm -hmm. on your voice tone or and just what you say over the phone to them, which is crazy. Yeah. And it, that also brings up this, I think like a lot of folks we talk to, they want to leverage this as like a cost saving mechanism where it's like, okay, I can spend less money on support agents because there's this heavy lifting the AI can do. But I really like kind of flipping that and be like, well... What if it can sort of provide a such a better experience that you're upselling people or there's more of like a positive outcome to the call as opposed to just a, a cost cutting mechanism and i think that's a an interesting vector to think down for sure and it, it goes back to this that uh, we you know this topic keeps coming up is people are scared about ai but i think maybe one day people are going to prefer to talk to someone at a call center at least that is an AI agent because it's just going to be so much easier to talk with them. And they're going to know your personality a lot better and you're going to, you're going to um, have a better conversation with them rather than with a human um, because that human right. might be pissed off. They might've answered, you know, 20 other calls and not in a good mood, but this AI bot is always going to know exactly what you want based on your voice tone. And um, they're always going to be happy no matter how many calls they've taken. So what's your right now, there's a wait list to get on um, any call.ai what what are you guys looking in terms of launching the uh, product to the end user? Yeah, so we're right now we've we've plucked a few people from the waitlist that have use cases that we think are particularly interesting. Um, and so there there are things around customer support that I think are pretty obvious, but there's also some uh, some things that came up that I didn't anticipate. Like one that's come up a couple times is um, like property management type stuff where, Let's say you're a company that manages a hundred properties and and you know things tend to break <laughs> at a pretty high rate when you have that many like the the, the number of calls that these companies will get uh, to to service like basic things is like pretty overwhelming and trying to deal with that call volume seems to be a, ch a real challenge and this technology is like perfect for that I think um, and I think you can sort of seed it with some specific uh data for that like the, the types of buildings or the types of problems that might uh frequently pop up and apply some retrieval augmented generation techniques to to really like try to solve those things in real time and then kind of fall back to a human and so basically we're trying to to nail a few use cases out of the park and in doing that we'll build some capabilities that i think will be broadly applicable to anyone who wants to use this platform as a self-serve thing uh, and once we feel good about where that is, then I think we'll we'll sort of open it up as like a self-serve product and really let people go to town and use their creativity um, and build whatever they want with it. And I think we'll we'll do a pretty generous free plan so that uh, we get the benefit of seeing what people can can do with this and and go from there. Uh, well, yeah. no, no on that, I think we move pretty fast. So I would imagine this is we're talking like a couple weeks uh, okay. to let this process play out, but. Uh, yeah, pretty excited about it. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, the cool thing is like you've got, had a, a bunch of experience already launching companies, so you know how you know how to uh, at least point your this newest venture in the right direction. Talk me through the platform. How does it work from the consumer side? Let's say you know you release it, and I go on. I go onto any call.ai. What does it look like? And walk me through kind of what I can do on there. 
Yeah. So the way we're trying to build it is it's sort of like a, a no code platform where there's a series of wizards that let you configure the agent to your liking. And so you can do things like choose the voice, um, represent the, the personality, um, describe the, the sort of outcome or task that the agent's trying to perform. And really what this does is it sort of collects all that and puts it in a prompt that we've optimized for this particular task. That's sort of like the, the most basic version of this. And now we could expose like the raw prompt to people and let them play with it the way you could with like a chat GPT. But I think that to a certain extent that doesn't yield the best, like we feel like we've converged on a prompt that works really well for this particular case. And it has to adhere to like a certain set of properties. Like you don't want to stuff too much into it or it starts losing some of the context uh, as the conversation flows. And so that's that's sort of where it stands today. Um, but we are working through a, a version of it where it's more like a sort of a, a drag and drop uh, type editor where you can uh, string multiple prompts together. You can define triggers that um, uh, will call out for particular integrations if you want to add more capability to it. And, like there's not like the the prompting ability right now is I think good enough to where we don't need that that really power usery type version of it, but it's something that we think we'll need eventually, and so we're, we're sort of tinkering with it. But at a basic level, it's sort of like a imagine like a type form like wizard where you're sort of answering basic questions, and then at the end of it, you've got this agent configured to your liking, and you can go back and, and tweak things. But it'll immediately dump you into a uh, a web RTC like interface, like you know, like something like Zoom, where you're like actually chatting with your the agent you built in real time. Um, it, it doesn't use any phone systems. It's all it's all over like RTC over the network, and you get a sense of of what the capabilities are of the agent you just created, and then you go back and and edit it, and you've got this sort of iteration loop happening that way. And at the end of that, we hopefully you have something that you like, and then you can figure out if you want to fire up a new phone number uh, to, to deploy it, or you can use a call forwarding on your existing number to, to switch over to it if you want to do that. Um, so that's that's sort of the basic flow at this point. And you said you have multiple languages too. How many languages are you capable of right now? Yeah, it's really bounded by how well ChatGPT will do with a given language. And so I think they claim something like, 60 languages are, are pretty high quality. Um, and then the other sort of constraint is the speech recognition models. How well does it do with multiple languages? And that um, that is, you know, like automated speech recognition has been around for so long that it's largely a solved problem. It's really about latency more than anything else. But there's multilingual uh, ASR models that are open source that are, um, that are fast. And so that's really not... Um, a constraint. And then for text-to-speech, um, I mean, there's there's so many text-to-speech models. I think 11 Labs, to me, is the state of the art in terms of latency and expressiveness. And I think they support most of the languages that, that ChatGPT works well with. So we're, we're talking like between 30 and 60 languages of wow. very, very high quality, which is such a like that in itself is a game changer. Like if you just want to have your customer support line, you know, uh, work with uh, like Spanish or French, you can immediately do that with like almost no configuration, which is kind of a game changer. So you can, at the end of this configuration, you one of the um, one of the things that will come up is like you can have a phone number, right? So people can call that phone number right away and talk to the agent you just created. Mm -hmm. um, now, how does it work in terms of like, so for the customer service service example, in terms of privacy, can the end user look at that phone call or like, how does that work? Like, because is there a transcription of the call or are there like rules and regulations around that, that, that cannot happen? Yeah. So, uh, there, there's a couple of things we, we could do. So one, there's sort of an outcome from the call. So, uh, in the veto case, it would look like a structured pizza order that you would then plug into the system for processing the pizza. We also have so sort of the summary of the call. We've got the structured data. We've got the summary of the call. We've got the transcription, and we have the raw recording. And so there's sort of a spectrum of what we can expose to, to the 
the end user there. In terms of, um, I mean, the short answer is we haven't really decided how to handle that quite yet. Mm -hmm. All that stuff is available, but not really exposed. It's more, mostly just the structured data at this point. In terms of uh, the phone privacy, there, there's a few considerations. Like, one, does it make sense to disclose that the that call is being answered by AI? I think probably it does, but I think we want to do that in a way that it doesn't sort of ruin the illusion. <laughs> I think nice. like, um, so just, that's sort of open-ended. And then in terms of like whether you can record the call, I think it's like the, the it, it depends on like the state of the caller or the state of the answerer. And, and so we haven't really quite figured that out, but I'm, I think like in the case where the calls are being handled sufficiently well and performing their functions, you may not need to expose the recording. I think the recording is good to have for um, generating training data to improve the quality going forward. Right. But um, I think in, in certain cases, it may not make sense to expose that. In other cases, if it's all sort of internal communications, then it does. So there's definitely some issues there to figure out. And, you know, like that's, those are the types of compliance things that <laughs> I think I worry about later <laughs> and worry about yeah. sort of building the product in a way that solves a problem. Now that's just yeah. sort of historically how we operated. Sort of like uh, OpenAI's model in a in a way, like they just sort of, you know, get, got all their data and then worry about things later. You know how they got their yeah, data. yeah, worry about copyright later. I guess right, right. <laughs> uh, one of the things that uh, we we interviewed Replicant and they do they do custom all their product is solely for customer service from what I from what I remember. But one of the things they said is they do reveal on every call that it's AI. But the way they did it was like. When someone answers, when the AI answers the call, it says, hey, this is your smart, smart automated call center or something to the fact that whatever language they used, I, you wouldn't know that it was AI. So right. it didn't put anybody off because if you just said, hey, this is the AI robot taking your call right now, most people, a lot of people might just hang up. But the way they put it, I forget the, the term, um, but it's in our, in our podcast with them. It made it sound very friendly and like, oh, who cares? Let's keep talking. Yeah, that's interesting. I think yeah. like the for me, and I might be weird in this, but like I'm almost more likely to talk to AI than like yeah. a human. It's like it's sort of like if I'm gonna if I can text you or call you, I'm gonna text you, right? Yep. Right. <laughs> Similar type of I think. Uh, yeah. No, I agree. I think a lot of people are gonna start to fall under that. They're gonna start to they're gonna start to realize that it might take time. Like when you know any new new technology comes out, like email and or the internet. But people are going to realize it's better to talk to AI than it is to talk to a human. I really think that's going to happen. And it's kind of crazy that you're not, I mean, I don't know if you you guys are so entrenched in this world. Maybe you have experienced a lot of cases where you're you're interacting with AI during in the course of sort of normal things like uh, like a chat bot or over the phone. But like, it really doesn't feel like it's penetrated my life in a way that you, you might expect. Because um, I, you know, I... I'm an early adopter on a lot of these things and I, I mm. see so much of it and I'm like, okay, like the capabilities are there. Why is this not like sort of widespread infecting every area of my life? It's, it's just not quite there yet. What are your thoughts on why that is? Do you think it's just slow development development speed from getting things to market or what's, what's, what do you, what are your thoughts? Well, I think the, the companies that have the distribution and reach to really make it feel like it's infecting your life are, are probably like, it's so early that they're, they're kind of slow to deploy these things would mm -hmm. be my guess. So like the classic example is like, you saw the rabbit, rabbit. Yeah. The little called, like device. The rabbit device yesterday. Yeah. And like the, the feedback I saw to that was like, okay, this is silly. Like these models are going to be deployed to your smartphone, like sort of imminently as soon as Apple feels like they sort of have it dialed in in a way that makes sense for them. And whether they're using someone else's model, probably not. They're probably developing their own. They'll deploy it to your phone. It'll like the capability capabilities will be amazing, and this rabbit thing will be like just lost <laughs> to the uh, in the history of failed launches. Yeah, and so I think they're they're taking their time with it. Um, and as soon as that happens, then it feels like okay, LLMs are going to be a part of everyone's life almost daily. And so I think the for for phone systems and and stuff that you interact with, like Shopify stores, I think that it's just a matter of time, but the players with the massive distribution are are taking their time with it. Particularly with AI voice, it seems like that's a big industry that you're taking part of. Where do you see the future of AI voice going? 
uh, we talked to some people who talk about voice actors and how it's kind of elevating the game for voice actors. Uh, where do you see this application in the next year or two or five, 10 years down the road? Well, I think it's the, the technology is, yeah, I mean, there's, there's like the doom and gloom way to look at it where it's like <laughs> replacing humans to a certain extent, which, but th there's also all these cases where, you know, you, like on your iPhone, you have this um, voice cloning thing, which it, I think presumably the reason why they built it is if you lost your voice for whatever reason and you need to be able to synthesize it, then you can do that. And so in a sense, it's it's like a really empowering feature. And that's one way to look at it. Um, another thing you mentioned is like people on YouTube who maybe don't want to get in front of a camera or they hate the sound of their voice and they don't want to speak mm -hmm. and they can use speech synthesis technology to basically create content where otherwise they wouldn't be able to create content. I think that's like a net win for the world. Um, and I, I think that's the way I tend to look at these things. Um, and so in terms of like voice acting and stuff like that, I think it's it, it, the types of stuff getting created, I think will will get better and, and better over time and things that might otherwise not have existed will. and. Like there's certainly trade-offs involved there, but like I I tend to look at it more optimistically, um, and certainly, like there are some financial motivations that I mean I think you saw it with like the the Screen Actor Actors Guild and Writer Strike stuff where it's like okay this is sort of a a scary scenario to be we're on the precipice of replacing all these very skilled people, um, but I think you know thinking for myself like. I use Copilot and Visual Studio Code, and I can like tell it to write particular pieces of code that I'm too lazy to write or are pretty trivial, and it do, like does a fantastic job. I don't feel like I feel like that frees me up to work on more creative things, sort of on the edge of what AI can't do. And in a sense, the productivity increase I'm getting is pushing me in that direction. And I think overall, I'm going to build better, more complex, more interesting things as a result. And I think there's a way to frame, you know, the question you're asking similarly. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily afraid of being replaced as like a product builder quite yet. <laughs> I think it's just going to improve my my output and my capability. Yeah, I've thought about this quite a bit, and I think AI is really raising the bar in almost every single industry. You can't be average anymore because AI can can do average in about every single industry. Uh, right. So you have to find ways to leverage AI in whatever industry you're in and kind of rise above that to do something even greater, something that requires even more human creativity. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's more work on the part of the individual because now you have this amazing tool that can come alongside you, take care of that sort of mundane stuff that you were, you were hinting at, stuff that takes a lot of time. And now you can focus your energy on building on top of that some more creative stuff um, more innovative stuff. And I think it's going to really raise the level of uh, humanity in general in almost every single industry. So it's pretty exciting, I think. Yeah. And I think there's a, a parallel to like company building, especially in the AI era, where if most of the technology is going to be commoditized or developed by a very small set of elite ML practitioners, like the folks, the researchers working in open AI, and you're not really going to compete with them on building foundational models or things like that. But you have these fantastic use cases for the technology they have built. Like, how do you sort of innovate in that world? And I, I think it comes down to there need to be business model innovations or marketing innovations or innovations in other areas that lets you differentiate. That's not necessarily like hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat on the tech stack or something like that. And like, I think that's that's been a tough transition for me to think through. Like, when I built my first company, like it was far less competitive. <laughs> there were far fewer companies being built and it just feels so noisy. Like every random idea I have, especially in AI, I just do a quick search and I find 10 other companies yeah. doing that thing. <laughs> and so right. that just means that like the, the, the way innovation plays out is going to look a little bit different than, than sort of where it historically has been. Yeah, it's almost like now if you're, you know, building a startup, you really have to, you might have a great idea. You might have 10 great ideas, but you really have to think through what the landscape's going to look like a year from now. Um, a lot of the AI startups out there right now, ChatGPT could come out with something the next day and just 
you know, blow your business model out of the water and end your business for the most part. You know, just like the, the GPT store, you know, that came out recently. I think it came out today. Um, but you'll be able to, you know, make custom chatbots um, via OpenAI and on their store. And that might put a lot of businesses out there out of business, you know, like uh, something that summarizes like YouTube videos or something like that. There might be a website that does that right now via AI, but there could be a free tool on the ChatGPT store that does that for you. And it's, it's hard. You got to think through all that stuff before you launch yeah. a product now. Because like you said, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of young entrepreneurs building interesting things in AI that are going to learn the lesson of platform risk pretty yeah. quickly that maybe <laughs> they haven't experienced before. Right. Even, even, even if you don't, even if you have a tool that do, does, uh, you know, can't be replicated on a GPT store, you know, you're, you're basing your business model. I'm not saying you in particular, but most of the companies out there are basing their business model on OpenAI's API, you know, and they have full control of that. So that's just something else to keep in mind. That's a risk that you have to keep in mind and and uh, be prepared for as well. Uh, the good thing is that there's a lot of other APIs out there that you can call for LLMs, and there's a lot of open source ones that are, you know, coming to the market as well. So, but it's uh, it it makes me think at night sometimes. Like I feel like like we're going down this road where. There's going to be five, ten big companies that control everything in the United States. I hope it doesn't get like that, but that's sure seems like where, where we're headed. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm such a I'm a huge fan of like Meta's approach to this stuff. I feel like these things need to be open. The models need to be open. The weights need to be open. Um, it it's I think it's a scary scenario where there are uh, just a handful of closed source things that are sort of best in class that everyone uses. And it, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sort of sinister stuff that that could be lying in these models that we either like don't understand quite how they work or uh, there, there's some sort of, not necessarily malicious, but like there's some decision-making governed by KPIs <laughs> that sort of creep into the development of these models. Um, so I'm a big, I'm just like rooting from the sidelines for like the metas of the world or like the mistrols uh, to build these very capable open source models. I mean, you can tell, you know, what you're, what you're hitting at, Chris, is like even with uh, ChatGPT, like if you go on there right now, you can tell that it's influenced by, you know, the, the big wigs at the companies or the decision makers at the companies of how it's going to work. Like right now, you can't go on ChatGPT and say, and this they did this recently from my understanding, you can't go on there and say, give me, make me a picture of Taylor Swift riding a horse, you know, via Dolly 3. It won't let mm -hmm. you do that anymore. So any kind of big name celebrity or big name politician, they won't let you create an image of them anymore. So there's all these restrictions um, set in place by ChatGPT and OpenAI, whereas the open source models don't have that. So, I mean, they do if you want to implement those restrictions, but it's a lot more refreshing to go on Mistral and ask to be you know, roasted and they'll swear at you rather, <laughs> rather than GP, chat GPT. If you ask them to roast you and swear at you, they'll just say, I cannot do that. Um, so just those small examples, like you don't want to have a big company out there that just has full control of all these, all these chatbots, because that, that would be a bad thing. I wanted to ask you about copyright. That's uh, a big concern right now, as far as material goes, but specifically with voices, uh, who owns the voices that are created by by some of these uh, AI voice generators, and who should own them? It's sort of an interesting question. There, the the voice cloning capabilities um, make it really easy to take someone's likeness and and profit from it in certain ways. And I don't. I think like it's sort of TBD on like how that stuff, like what the the. The current state is. I think there's a, a bunch of gray area built into it. So I feel more comfortable talking about like where I believe it should go. Um, and I think like uh, the, the attitude I, I tend to have is like um, if we are too restrictive on copyright, then like the, there's a real opportunity cost like to losing potential innovation. So I tend to fall on the side of like, let's ignore copyright for now while we kind of figure out, figure out how the landscape is going to evolve. Um, and if it turns out that people are, like some group is disproportionately hurt in a way that that seems avoidable and makes sense, then, then maybe you can legislate that after the fact. Um, but 
I think people tend to, you know, if you're on the wrong side of a trend and you feel like this kind of thing is directly impacting you without really understanding the causality, I think it's easy to sort of loudly complain about the state of the world and, and how, uh, you know, like the, the sort of gray areas around copyright and this stuff is disproportionately hurting you. And it's hard to know like what's actually true or not. Um, so yeah, that, I think like, uh, this came up with, um, uh, with music and there are certain artists that, um, I think tend to see themselves as benefiting from people cloning their, their, their music because it sort of brings attention to them as an artist. And then there are people that feel the exact opposite. Like this is completely cannibalizing like my sales or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's definitely different ways to think about it. And like in the absence of real compelling data that suggests that we know what's happening with this stuff, it, you know, I tend to fall on sort of the, like, let's ignore copyright right now. I think it's better that OpenAI did and yielded like these capabilities that are, are like in my mind, unequivocally like good for the world uh, that might not otherwise existed in, in like with the quality that they currently do. Um, and, you know, now they're big enough to where they can fight legal battles or against the New York Times or whoever else. <laughs> you mentioned a little bit earlier um, when we first got on on the podcast uh, about your tech stack. Um, but can you, can you go into a little bit more detail? Um, feel free to share as much or as little as you want about that as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think like the most interesting part is um, that it's almost like uh, real-time audio processing happens. So as soon as a large enough chunk of audio data comes into our system, there's a bunch of operations that get performed on it. And you can think about it as sort of pipelining this audio data through a series of models to process it and spit it back on the other end as quickly as possible. So you get an audio chunk and then you decide, does this audio chunk represent a pause? Like, is there a, a long enough silence baked into this to where we can begin the process of transcribing it through a, a speech recognition system. And so there is a, what, what's called a voice activity detection model, which is just basically been trained on, is this human speech, yes or no? And if, if no, like what's the duration of non-human speech? And if that's long enough to represent a pause that suggests that we should process the, the audio chunk for um, to, to transcribe it into speech, then we, we run that through a model called Whisper. Um, it's basically a, an open source model that OpenAI built, and it's been ported um, to C++, originally written in Python. So it's it's been ported to run much, much faster. So it's running on a, a local machine here. It'll take that chunk, transcribe it into text, and then uh, it will run that through uh, the, our prompt in the LLM. And then as soon as it starts streaming tokens back in response to that, that text, then it... Uh, takes those chunks and sends it to um, 11 labs, which again has another streaming API. So you, you take that streaming mm -hmm. API and then spit it back. Uh, in the case of uh, a phone, it's uh, a Twilio app. So it, it okay. takes that streaming data and, and um, will echo it back on the other side. In the case of uh, like the web application, it, it uses a WebRTC. Um, so it's, it's pushing data back on that socket. And so you get like very small incremental chunks of processing happen. And the reason why you do that is because if you buffered it up, then there would be long delays and it would sort of break the illusion. Um, and so building that sort of pipeline of like processing the smallest uh, amount of data to actually successfully make the, the application work was, was sort of like the not really an innovation, but like that was sort of the hard part of this. And then obviously like we, we didn't develop our own uh, speech recognition or text to speech or, you know, like that stuff is sort of out of the domain for what we could have done in, in a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, that's, that's effectively how it works. And there are some other interesting things that can be done that we're not currently doing. So there are um, models that can, that are capable of understanding when it's a, one speaker versus another. So you can imagine a conversation happening between multiple people or someone talking to you in the background while you're on the phone. Well, you can actually filter that out by running it through that model in parallel to know that, okay, you're speaking, so I will run that speech through 
through the the pipeline, but I will ignore all the other speech coming in. And so there's there's things like that that's that's actually possible and pretty high quality now. I think one thing that separates your your tool from others that we've um, used before is it feels like the latency is really low and good. Uh, like it's it's it feels very natural. Um, and there's still so much more improvement to be made too. So uh, that's really cool that that you guys have got it down uh, pretty good for the end user right now. Um, what what the, what do you do? One thing that another problem that keeps coming up is like, what do you do for natural language when when someone's calling um, your app and the caller interrupts the chatbot? Because that seems like that's that happens all the time in in the natural language when humans and humans are talking with each other. But how do you mitigate that or make it feel natural when you're talking to an AI entity and the end user interrupts the AI? Like, does the AI sort of just forget what they were going to say? Do you force the AI to forget what they were just about to say and sort of listen to what the user is saying in that moment in time? Or how does that actually work? Because that seems like that's a hard thing to get right. The most annoying thing about that, actually, well, first of all, we can run in non-interruption mode. And when you run in non-interruption mode and just assume that you're not attempting to interrupt, like the conversation flows much more seamlessly. However, we really wanted to support interruptions. And so there's a couple of issues. One is there's a certain amount of data that's already on the wire going that are going uh. that is going to go back to your phone and when you interrupt it we can't like undo that that data's already been sent and so uh -huh. it's, it's sort of like the the latency of the systems that are sort of like moving those bits on the wire that like if that's really fast then the interruption feels seamless but if there's if your network is a little bit slow or um, any uh, in any sort of subsystem along the way is experiencing uh, unusually high latency, then you get like the interruption happens, but then you keep getting like output from the agent that you don't expect. And yeah. that is a tricky problem to, to deal with. The best way to deal with it is to remove as many third parties from sort of the data <laughs> flow as possible. Um, so for example, when you're, when you're using like WebRTC versus Twilio, it doesn't have to go through sort of Twilio systems at all. And so that it feels a little bit more um, snappy and responsive in that case. Um, but since we're not going to like replicate Twilio's infrastructure, <laughs> there's really no other way to deal with that for now. So anyways, that, that's one problem that's difficult. And the other problem that's that's difficult to deal with is like figuring out when you should interrupt. And so there's a lot of... Uh, external noises that will trigger interrupts that you shouldn't necessarily interrupt for. And so what we do is we uh, make it a little bit more difficult to interrupt than, than you could. And so we notice when there's the start of some audio segment that may represent you interrupting. Mm -hmm. And we, we kind of let that happen to a some sort of natural pause. And if it feels like you're, you're saying like, hold on, as soon as the pause comes after the hold on, then we we've already processed that and we know that like, we want to interrupt. So we sort of kill all the existing processing that's happening in the background and sort of start over. But in terms of what the prompt receives, the prompt receives the full transcript of everything that's happening with like the, if we cut you off mid sentence, like what the mm -hmm. agent is saying, it'll see that cut off and it'll process it like a, a real transcript where an interruption happens. And so in terms of the response that, that OpenAI is generating, that is actually pretty good. And so, and that, that, that works well. Um, it's just sort of like deciding when to interrupt versus not interrupt is a, a tricky problem. And then sort of preventing uh, this excess of data on, on the wire from flowing through the system. Um, so those are the two challenges. And I think like we can, we can do a, a much better job, but the difference between a system that you can interrupt and not, I personally found I much prefer the the one that you can interrupt, mm -hmm. especially when you're working with a prompt that tends to be verbose and you just want to like <laughs> go on to the next question or whatever. Right. And it feels like it definitely feels like you're not talking. If you get interruptions even decently right on the AI end, it feels so much more natural, you know, talking, talking to that rather than just some AI bot that just forces you to whatever it wants to tell you and you can't talk back to it, you know? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you all... Right now, like the the thing that happens more than I'd like is like you interrupt it, and then you sort of interject something, and then pause, and then start talking again. 
But mm -hmm. that second pause, there, like that pause there, uh, like the the agent will try to like if it, if there's too much of a pause, it'll try to respond. And so if you don't get the pauses right, then you end up like both talking again at the same time. I think that happened, Hunter, with your call with Vito yeah. like once or twice. And yeah. that it's just like annoying, but I, I think we can tune that to, to where it feels a little more natural. But you know what? That actually happens in the real world too. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. People talk over each that. other it all the time. It does happen in like the real right world now. all the time. Especially on these podcasts when Ryan and I try to talk <laughs> at the same time. That happens all the time. So, I mean, it works really well. And I think that over time it will continue to get better for sure. And uh, I'm excited to see what happens for sure. Yeah. Well, the you know, like if you break down the latency, the biggest latency is the time to generate the first token from OpenAI. And so I think the worst case from your call I'm looking at, it took OpenAI 2.4 seconds to respond with a first token to one of your inputs. Um, on average, it's actually less than a second. And so when it ends up being closer to the you know low hundred, couple hundred milliseconds, it starts to feel snappy. But like, you know, not surprisingly, they're they're like the the variance of latencies is pretty, it's pretty high variance. You know, I think there's just a lot of usage of open AI and like I don't really, yeah, I mean, who knows like how uh scalable their infrastructure is. I think they're just kind of like trying to meet demand. But uh, if you were to move to a model, a less capable model that ran locally, that was fine-tuned for your particular use case, then that latency would be gone. And you would, it would almost be like, yeah, I think it would be around 400 milliseconds to respond to your pauses, which would be about as good as what a human is going to do. And so uh, when we get to that point, then this stuff is really, I think, going to be... Um, you know, like when there's Llama 3 that comes out that's like as good as GPT-4 that you can run locally mm. with pretty strong hardware, then yeah, this thing is really going to be uh, impressive. So one day, like all, all of our computers, phones will have some kind of local LLM on it and it will handle that data for us instead of instead of calling an API <laughs> to open the eyes that, that we insane. think. And then you could just bake the logic onto the phone. But I mean, in this case, all right. All right. my all right. server processing the data won't have to call out to open AI okay. at all. And that will be a huge win for the, for this particular application. Well, we'll start uh, wrapping things up here, but um, thanks again for coming on, Chris. We really appreciate it. If anybody wants to check this out again, it's anycall.ai. It's one of the best conversations I've had with any kind of AI. Um, it's really fun to, to play around with their demo. Um, so go check them out. It feels very natural. Is there anything else you want to promote here, Chris, other than your, other than your company? Uh, no, no. Okay. Uh, thanks for taking the time to chat. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was super fun. And then be sure to uh, subscribe to Ryan and I's weekday newsletter, uh, fry-ai.com, where we do um, top three stories of the day, along with uh, some tools and community interaction. Uh, and we have a mystery link too. So that sets us apart. Uh, you can click that link every single day and it'll take you to something crazy, cool, or interesting in the world. I should of AI. go click that right now. Yeah, go click the mystery link right now. Um, and then on Sundays, we do deep dives into very cool developments and developers like this one, anycall.ai uh, with Chris. And then be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Behind the Bots, uh, so you can see all our cool interviews. <laughs>